Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl, and welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt. Today, I'll be speaking with Ruth Ann Harper, who's a clinical psychologist in the United Kingdom and a specialist in relationships and issues related to narcissism. She works in private practice, but also has a rather inspiring YouTube channel. It was great to talk to her a little bit about what it is to be a YouTuber, but also to explore this topic of relationships and narcissism and where compassion and self-compassion might fit in. It was a wonderful conversation and she and I hope to do more collaborations in the future. And so I bring you Ruth Ann Harper. Yeah, well, I was I was definitely um, pondering that that I'm I'm very excited to speak with you actually for three reasons. Um, the first reason is uh, it's just some there's something special about being able to you know talk to other therapists around the world really, and and I'm here in Australia and you're all the way over there in the UK, and so I don't know it's it's really just great to to get to to sort of meet people and and kind of. Um, you know, get to know each other around the world. Um, but second, because of your particular area of interest and, and expertise around relationships, helping people develop strong, effective relationships, but also, you know, what to do in situations when one or other or, or both potentially sometimes, I guess, of the parties in the relationship um, are suffering with narcissism or personality disorder. And uh, so I'm hoping we'll we'll get into all of that. But the the third reason really is is that we're fellow travelers. We both have these YouTube channels, <laughs> and um, and in some ways it's a sort of a, a a lonely world, isn't it? In a way, you know, you sort of for me, I I certainly feel that way. You know, kind of closeted in my little room here, trying to keep out the noise and and you know just talking to a. A screen sometimes. Your yours is considerably further along than mine, though. I must admit, in terms of views and subscribers and all of those metrics that that we look at. So, congratulations on all of that. They go up and down. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great to have you. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose I wondered if we could start with um, you know, just just your journey, maybe into psychology or or therapy, and and then this particular interest of yours, uh, relationships, and so on, and maybe even the YouTube bit. I'd be kind of curious to hear all, of all those oh. pieces. You know, I trained in psychology, but I I don't know why I wanted to do it. I just did. I like people. I enjoy yeah. it, and I like kind of intellectual challenges. So it was a it was just a natural fit. I enjoyed it, and. I did my clinical training and then I worked in the National Health Service in the UK um, for many years and worked with in different services, worked in community teams, worked in inpatient teams. And I just really enjoyed working with people with personality disorders. That was like, that's the reason I get out of bed. That's what I enjoy the most. Um, and then I was not working for a while because I had a baby and COVID hit <laughs> and I was like, oh, I want to go back to work, but I don't want to go back full time. I don't want to 
work in quite the same way. I wanted to kind of have more flexibility. So I decided to go into private practice and was just booming with referrals for people with relationship issues, which was kind of my game. That's what I like doing. And um, kind of issues of narcissism just kept coming up. And I think partly because of so much information and misinformation and rather distorted information about narcissism on social media. And I, right at the start of the pandemic, I messaged Wendy Berry, who's a schema therapist who developed schema therapy for narcissism. And I think the idea that, hang on, we were working on Zoom now anyway. So my supervisor does not have to be in the same country. Where's she located? She's in the States. Uh -huh. She's in the US, in Washington. So anyway, I started working with Wendy and it just kind of blossomed. This was a thing I was interested in. It was a thing I had the skills to do. I enjoyed it. I didn't specialize in narcissism when I was working for the NHS, but I certainly had no shortage of issues with narcissism on my caseload that I was working with. And so I just, it just blossomed from there. And then I thought, well, I don't like some of this misinformation on YouTube about narcissism. So I can do better. So my own narcissism took over and I decided I would, um, I would put out the good content. <laughs> <laughs> I resemble that. <laughs> you, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I started on YouTube and discovered I quite enjoyed it. And I think really interestingly, some of the biggest supporters of my channel have been, which largely most of the stuff I put out actually is more focused on people who've been in relationships with very narcissistic people or who are still in relationships with very narcissistic people recovering from abusive relationships. But some of the most supportive people from my channel are people with NPD um, who are also making their own YouTube channels. <laughs> And that's been a really interesting thing to see. And I think there is, for, for some of them, they're, they're narcissists who are in therapy. Um, they have kind of a good amount of self-awareness. There's an appreciation of needing to accept the not so great sides of NPD and how it may contribute to pretty horrible and sometimes abusive behaviors in relationships without having to demonize people with NPD either. There's some great examples of, of interviews you've done with people with narcissistic personality disorder on your channel. And, and, you know, there is a lot of kind of insight that one can get just sort of listening to them, reflecting on their experiences and what all of this means to them. And, and also some of the nuance too, they try to just sort of, uh, explore the nuance of what it really is or what it really, the experience of NPD really is for them. I was going to ask you, when you were that um, early career psychologist working in the NHS, you know, because sometimes working with personality disorder can can be, you know, tricky and, and sort of hard work and emotional for therapists as well in some ways. Do you have a sense of, of what sort of drew you to that work or what created that interest at the start? I like it. I have an inner rebel. <laughs> I have a very rebellious mode. I grew up in a, um, you know, a very happy, warm family, but in a religious environment that was quite authoritarian and, and not in a horrible, cruel or nasty way, but it was, you were told what to wear, what to think. 
and I think part of my kind of growth as a person was to rebel a bit against that and to broaden my horizons and to see things are not quite so simple as I've been led to believe so that's a kind of draw for me and I think being told that people with personality disorders are untreatable was like a red flag to a bull it's like really you think Mm. (laughs) well there's a there's a belief I'm not going to adopt um so that was I think that was certainly part of it and I think also when I started working it was an interesting time in in the world of personality disorders so I qualified late 2000 2000 2009 I qualified and at that time DBT had just developed schema therapy was just beginning it's kind of thing with with people borderline jeff young had just written his big schema therapy book the yellow book that i think we all have and there was a bit of a buzz about it and i'd had so many supervisors (laughs) and clinicians who were much more senior than me telling me this is a population who don't respond to treatment and I was like, mm, that seems there's some data here that suggests otherwise. And I also, I think I also hit lucky that I met other psychologists who were much more experienced than me, who actually really like working with this population. And I just niched into it and I would seek them out as mentors and I'd request them as supervisors. And it just became the thing that I did and the thing that I felt I was good at. And the nice thing about specializing in this area is you never have a shortage of referrals from other therapists who are struggling with it and and that's not judging the other therapists i think we all have our limitations there are presentations i'm not great at working with so it just kind of happened it kind of grew from there but i think there is that element for me of being a little bit of a rebel and i think you also when you work with personality disorders i do think you have to be very flexible you have to be you have to be able to stay steady and to stay strong but you also have to not be thrown when Mm. things change suddenly Mm. you know when the person you're working with when their presentation goes from one week they're really engaged and happy to the next week they won't speak to you or they're really annoyed at you i think you have to Mm. be kind of able to tolerate that which for some reason i am and that's that's fine you know Mm. so yeah, that's how I ended up doing this. I recognise that notion of, um, you know, personality disorders are sort of untreatable. You know, that was a pervasive idea in a way, wasn't it, a, a couple of decades ago or more? Uh, and the rebellious part of you, you know, kind of felt like, you know, that was therefore worthy of, of disputing, I guess. And in a funny sort of a way, that was the, I don't know if, if that's the first myth or misin- misinformation, but in a funny sort of way, that's been your a little bit your um your task ever since has been to to sort of really identify that that there are some things that we're not we don't quite know right about personality disorder we we kind of get it wrong or we make assumptions or there's there's this misinformation what what would you say would be some of the maybe top 5 <laughs> myths or misinformation about um, personality disorder i'm putting you on the spot but yeah well, what are some examples you know. Personality disorder or narcissism? Let's stick with narcissism, I think. Yeah, for the the purposes of this. Yeah. The thing about narcissism is narcissism is pathology. So, narcissism itself um, 
I mean, there's different definitions in the literature, but I think probably the one I would most go with is that narcissism is a drive to feel special. And it's a drive to feel unique and to stand out. And we all have that to some extent, or hopefully we have that to some extent. Um, so I see it as a spectrum. And in the middle, you have a healthy sense of I'm special, I'm unique, I'm important. Maybe you have some rose tinted glasses. You see yourself as maybe slightly more capable and talented than you really are. And if you didn't, would you put out a YouTube video? Maybe not. <laughs> would someone pick up a guitar and start to sing and be, be a musician? Would someone act? Would someone create a piece of art? You know, we, that drive is, is a creative and potential force for good. Um, <clears throat> and the problem is having too much of it or not enough of it. So we know, for example, low scores on the narcissistic personality in inventory, which is a measure of narcissism. It's not a measure of pathology. It's a measure of narcissism. Low scores are associated with depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. Hmm. And high scores are also associated with depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem and very fluctuating, um, overly um, reactive self-esteem. So if you have a success, it goes to your head. <laughs> If you have a failure, it's crushing. Hmm. So, which is one of the issues in kind of more pathological versions of narcissism. So that's that's one myth. Hmm. I think the second myth is uh, narcissism is untreatable. And I think you look if you're looking at narcissistic personality disorder or narciss like pathological narcissistic presentations. Some people who may not actually be, meet formal diagnosis for a personality disorder, a lot of people I work with don't have a diagnosis and I don't see any reason for them to have it, but they're certainly struggling with the need to be special, the need to be grandiose and overreaction to criticism, an inability to tolerate failure or an inability to get started on things because unless it's special, unless it's amazing, it's never going to be good enough. So those are the kind of presentations I work with. but. The idea that's untreatable, I think, is a really challenging one because I think it's a massive spectrum. And at the one hand, where you have narcissism overlapping with psychopathy, with criminality, where you have someone who is really criminal, um, I think there's some evidence that there is a real strong genetic um, version particularly around psychopathy, where they really don't have empathy. They really are very transactional in their relationships. They really don't care. They're goal orientated in terms of my goal is whatever, I don't know, to get your money, for example, and they'll be exploitative and they'll do whatever it takes to reach that goal. And they don't really care the effects on other people. I'm not so hopeful about treating though that group of people, I think, the evidence would suggest there's a much more genetic predisposition there and that that's much harder to kind of treat. Maybe something you can manage, maybe something. I did an interview with Lars Mazden about that, which is really interesting because he works in prisons. So I think at that end of the spectrum, I don't know if you'd say untreatability, but certainly much more challenge. But then you have the sort of under the spectrum I work with more, which is the sort of hypersensitivity to criticism, um, some level of grandiosity, often a level of grandiosity that sometimes works for the person and they're very successful in one or two areas of life, but are really struggling in others. 
And usually they're really good at work and really terrible in their relationships at home. So that's where you kind of get the challenges. So I think there, I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, but unfortunately, there's a real lack of, of research around narcissistic presentations and treating them. And so we don't, it's not like borderline personality disorder where I'm like, I think DBT is pretty good evidence that's going to help you with emotional regulation. Schema therapy or mentalization based treatments probably going to help you with your relationships and your sense of yourself. And you can probably take your pick of any of the therapies, to be honest, with borderline and expect to get some benefit if you've got a therapist who's clued up on borderline and is kind of capable of kind of working with you and working with a therapeutic relationship. But we don't have that for MPD. So I think we have to kind of draw on the principles from those other therapies and tailor it to each individual, which we do anyway in any treatment, you, you tailor it to the, the person in front of you. So, yeah, I've gone off on one about treatability. Mm, that's good. <laughs> no, I think I think that's really a useful thought. That uh, firstly, that it is on a bit of a spectrum, and and perhaps yeah. at the low end and the high end, there can be you know sort of difficulties that emerge. You know, if if that sort of narcissistic trait or whatever is is too low or too high, I, I feel like I relate to that you know like that idea of of one's own sort of self-belief and and feeling like i have something that people would want to hear you know is is sort of something of a driver here on youtube or whatever and you know and millions of people would it be billions or millions of people feel that way and have youtube channels but you know the arts or other forms of work it, it there's a sort of a sweet spot there where perhaps narcissism as a trait is is kind of helpful that there's a, a different category which is perhaps that more genetic kind of predisposition it might also come along with other you know with the psychopathy or the criminality or those sorts of things that's a that's a tricky group but for for a lot of people yeah it's it's about kind of you know perhaps it's something they've learned through life experiences or upbringing or whatever it might be and and perhaps they can learn certain behavioral changes or certain skills or or relational skills to to help manage it yeah and i think we can go a bit beyond i'm hopeful about the potential to go beyond just changing someone's behaviors because hopefully as you change your behaviors you start to have new experiences of relationships most of the people i've worked with are very high in pathological narcissism and this would also be borne out in the research. They have experiences of often abuse in childhood, often a huge amount of neglect in childhood or being put on a pedestal as a child, relentless pressure from parents to perform or such total neglect that it's like, I would work so hard to get your attention and recognition and still not being able to do it. And so they just keep going, just keep pouring into the strategy. I'm going to be perfection I'm going to be grandiose I'm going to show you what I'm capable of and there's a sort of inability to tolerate any weakness or failure and often that has worked for them you know often they've been the kid who is amazing at sports or amazing academically who's thriving in one area and getting praise and admiration for that but actually they don't feel accepted and loved just as they are mm. so I think there's lots that can be done to actually help change how someone feels about themselves, whether you do that through 
kind of the self-compassion approaches that I know you you're really a fan of and really good at schema therapy approaches I think schema therapy and compassion focused therapies they're like buddies really they really are you know kindred spirits so I, I use a lot of both um so I, I I think we can go a little beyond just changing behaviors there is a kind of idea all you can do with someone who's narcissistic is get them to change their behaviors they'll always be a narcissist and I'm like they might always have a spiciness and there might always be that little bit of that I'm a little special right but I do think there's a possibility to change to become more stable in your self-esteem mm. to be less you know if you think about the person with a youtube channel you know when your video kicks off it's interesting because i've i've kind of done some bits of youtube coaching and talked to other creators and the one of the worst things that can happen to to your channel sometimes is a video going viral because you can never repeat it and so the, it goes to the person's head, <laughs> you feel special and amazing. And then when the next video flops or it's average, <sighs> so deflating, you know, so it's that inability to tolerate the fluctuations. So mm. I think you want to actually to do anything creative, whether that's on YouTube or any of the creative industries, I think you mm. actually have to have healthy narcissism in the sense of the ability to see yourself as special and unique and having something to offer and a positive view of yourself that isn't overly puffed up when you have a big success. That's so able to take it, enjoy it, celebrate it, but also when the next failure comes along or the next flop comes along or you get a negative review or you don't get the audition, you're okay. Mm. It's not crushing. It's disappointing. You might be a bit sore for a few days. You might be a bit sad. You might be irritated, but you don't fall into the pits of despair about it or the pits of victimhood of, oh, nobody recognizes my genius. They don't appreciate me. You know, that's the, another presentation of narcissism. So it is that steadiness that actually in self-esteem that probably we need to head in the direction to off. Yes, I, I, that, that's a, a, a great sort of reminder that it's perhaps beyond just behavioural change. You know, there, yeah. there's, there's multiple ways in, you know, thoughts and feelings yeah. and behaviours and physical sensations, motivations, maybe even the motives yeah. that, that, that might change. But I remember one of your uh, perhaps viral videos was the one where you interviewed um, the unnamed narcissist oh, the, nameless his... narcissist. the nameless narcissist yeah 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 and um i watched that one and i i remember him saying that you know at the heart of it is often self-esteem related concerns and and that that's perhaps one of the big drivers and therefore we're, we're wanting to really give attention to that piece and and work in and around self-esteem he was argue and i would agree with him largely actually that where borderline personality disorder is an emotion regulation disorder you know i think the renaming of it is emotionally unstable personality disorder and i think that's probably a good renaming he would argue narcissistic personality disorder is a self-esteem regulation disorder mm. that you can't regulate your self-esteem and i'm like yeah i think that's actually true mm. and we see it, there's research as well that is suggesting that 
the sort of grandiose and vulnerable presentations of narcissists. So the grandiose is like, oh, I'm amazing, I'm special, I'm the center of attention, I'm the kingpin, look at me. And the more vulnerable presentation is that I'm the I'm the biggest victim in the world, I'm unrecognized, no one appreciates me, no one understands me, I'm, you know, I, I don't get what I deserve. Um, that presentation, actually, what seems to happen is people flip between those two. Mm. So they're not separate diagnostic categories. These things exist in the same person. Mm. Yep. You may only see one of them. You know, you mm. may only see the grandiose version, but the person behind closed doors may be quite different. Mm. What, one of the things I noticed you said, which uh, sort of piqued my curiosity, was that sometimes these traits can be very helpful at work, but not so helpful in relationships. Can can you take us there in terms of, uh, you know, narcissism or NPD in the relationship context and what, what that's all, what's happening there? Yeah, well, you know, they can be helpful at work to an extent. Okay. <laughs> um, so let, let me clarify that. You, you know, I'm kind of thinking of the narcissistic CEO, you know, the person who's got that grand vision who will work really hard achieves it loves the success keeps going it's got to get bigger and better and if they're on something good they can build something pretty great and pretty spectacular or the highly narcissistic i mean the classic stereotype is the narcissistic surgeon um and in a way i kind of think it probably helps if you're a surgeon and you're dealing with someone's body <laughs> right in front of mm. you <laughs> to not be overly empathic because if you're there thinking about their family, the possibility that they're going to die, what impact that's going to have on their children, it's going to be emotionally overwhelming. The ability to switch off your emotions, just focus and do the job, do it well and take great pride in it and maybe be quite demanding of other people to make sure it goes well, mm. may actually have some functionality in that context. Mm. But often you find that CEO or that surgeon may have staff who are not very appreciative of their interpersonal style. They may be impatient, they may be demanding, they may be, you know, intolerant of people. I've certainly worked with couples who run businesses together and one is one is the person who drives the achievement, the other one picks up the interpersonal stuff behind them. Sometimes that works for people, you know, sometimes that's okay. But you, you certainly can affect the relationships in the workplace, but it can also affect relationships at home where the person comes home and nothing's ever good enough. And it's the partner at home who's seeing the more vulnerable presentation that it's never good enough. No, no one appreciates me. I'm the person who's doing all the work. No one else is ever doing anything. And they all bunch lazy. They all not, you know, that sort of thing at home. And then the lack of empathy and the lack of concern for a partner and how they might be feeling. And the lack of ability to just relax and enjoy yourself. You know, that's the other thing about NPD. The, the, the ability to relax and enjoy and just have pleasure without the need to perform is really lacking. Mm. You know, and so they're not fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, they can be. I mean, it's just thing. It can be fun when they're in a very grandiose state. But the ability to have relaxed, easygoing fun is, is, is hard. Do you feel like there is a, a sort of a, a gender sort of element to it? Is there 
more males in that men in that category that perhaps an, uh, narcissistic or higher on the narcissistic spectrum or or is it more evenly split than that it's more often diagnosed in men but i'd also say it's more often diagnosed in forensic populations i mean like i say most people i work with while they have that presentation or aspects of it they don't have the diagnosis mm. and i'm not keen for them to get the diagnosis mm. i don't you know it's not necessary um, it's much more necessary to understand the psychological processes and what's going on for them. So, you know, I'm not too really, I think, helpful to think about that. But I think probably, I think there's sort of cultural issues in how it presents. So I think vulnerable presentations are pretty common in women and men, whereas the more grandiose presentation is more obvious in men. But then I think there's versions of the grandiose presentation in women that are underappreciated. You, they're not all the braggarts not all the the ceo you have the the chairperson of the parent teacher association who's the most charitable most giving most generous parent in the room mm. <laughs> or you know or the the person who does a lot of community activities for charity and they you know the, the communal what's called communal narcissism which is like my specialness comes from my giving and my oh, service oh. to the community and no one serves the community quite like me mm. so i think you see that presentation more in women but mm. unrecognized as narcissism does that make sense yeah that's that's wonderful i i often notice in the the compassion world that sometimes there can be almost a, a competition as to who's the most compassionate sort of thing and and it's it's i hadn't really thought about it in those terms but it, it's yeah it sparked my my curiosity there about um are there, you know, kind of narcissistic elements behind, you know, sort of even some of that, perhaps? I'm the kindest person, mm. the most compassionate, the most understanding. Mm. Th then the next question is, okay, so, um, but is that therefore a force for good? And so therefore it's a, it's, you know, it's kind of a good thing or, or not? Yeah, but it's like anything, there can be good aspects to it. Hmm. And there, there can be major downsides, you know? I mean, I think with the point at which you're telling everyone how compassionate and kind and amazing you are, you're probably pretty intolerable. Hmm. I mean, do you want someone to... Because you, you kind of create the, the sort of where it's not really compassion because you're not viewing someone, this is my fellow human being with whom I have a lot in common. Hmm. And maybe they're going through a really hard time at the moment. And... I could be there too, <laughs> you know, that sort of relationship between equals, which I think is really important in compassion, because mm. otherwise it's patronizing and it's pity and nobody wants to be in the receiving end of pity. Mm. You know, see, that, that I think if you have very narcissistic drive to be compassionate, you know, probably you're pretty annoying. So if I, if we think about the person in a relationship whose partner is sort of you know higher on on narcissism perhaps not npd sort of uh, diagnostically but so so that that person like what what are some of the things that they report in terms of what it's like to be in that relationship and perhaps some of the the, the effects that that can have on them and their psychological well-being well you know if you go back to the myth narcissus had a lover ah. um so narcissus has 
uh, a partner or a, 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 someone who pursued him, whose name was Echo. And Echo had already been cursed by the gods that she was only able to repeat the last words someone else had said. So Echo can only follow Narcissus around, repeating back whatever he says to her, hmm. which is irritating for him, which is he rejects her and then she flees and hides and she's in a cave echoing that's where you hear her today in the myth but you know um, this is so all she can do is echo uh -huh. but so i think people will describe feeling invisible like my needs are no longer important my dreams my ambitions the things that i value were unseen is very common um and i think you often get the sort of person who's too low in narcissism in a relationship with a person who's too high and the person who's too low will underplay themselves will seek to serve the other person well i'm not special but i'll support your dreams i'm here to support you to to sacrifice myself for you and the highly narcissistic person is like all right then. because i'm so special so there, there's a there's a chemistry there that wow. in worst sense of the word that's not going to work very well it's not going to end well mm. because actually the person who's highly narcissistic probably would benefit from being in a relationship with someone who's far more stable and who's far more robust and maybe also better at having some boundaries with them like we're not doing that mm. Mm. you know no we're taking the weekend off as we agreed <laughs> and likewise they would probably do better to have a partner who's willing to be like, your dreams are important. You know, who's prepared to encourage them to push themselves a little bit. Mm. You know, to to expand themselves, to take risk, to be willing to be the center of attention and to be special on occasion. It reminds me of the the notion of schema chemistry, isn't it? In in oh, schema yeah. therapy, and and yeah. that there's something that feels very very good for them both certainly at the beginning perhaps and then gradually it becomes more difficult over time yeah yeah and and i think both people often get caught up in a fantasy <clears throat> of the, the what the relationship is that is going to be an ideal relationship that they're going to be perfectly attuned to each other that this is the person who's going to rescue me this is the person who i'm going to serve this is the person i can um put forward and i can be appreciated because of how giving i am um mm. that's not going anywhere good and likewise the person's like this is the person who admires me this is the person who respects me this is the person who recognizes my brilliance again that's not going to end well you know but mm. you can see the drawer at the beginning mm. you know and i i think sometimes there's a sort of another one of the myths is like oh narcissists deliberately love bomb people they like target people and they strategically give them what they want and flatter them and give them what they need in order to lure them in. But actually it is possible. I think some people do do that in the very psychopathic end of the spectrum. People do target, and you know, con artists do this very well. They find the weakness, they find the things that are um, of most concern to them and they go for those things that are emotionally resonant as a way to manipulate people. Salespeople do it too. <laughs> but I think for a lot of the time, the narcissistic people that I've worked with 
they are caught up in a fantasy of ideal love as much as the other person in the relationship. They really do believe that this is a super special person, super special relationship that's going to be the best relationship there ever has been, you know, and they really, really believe it. And they feel very special because they're getting that attention. They have someone who's so adoring. It feels great, you know, and so it feels good for both of them at the start. Mm. It's Mm. not necessarily a deliberate targeting that I think some people often think it is. And I think social media often tells them that it is. No, it's, it's, it's an organic beginning that there's this sort of just a, 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 an immediate attraction uh, that feels special for, for both parties. Finally, I've found yeah. someone who, you know, sort of, you know, makes, makes me feel all of these various things for, for the person who's, uh, who's, who's the partner of the, the person with narcissism that they, they maybe gradually end up feeling though sort of invisible or needs not met or kind of sacrificing those needs and and perhaps even building resentment or losing self-esteem themselves and what about for the person with the higher narcissism where where do they kind of end up uh as the as this sort of special relationship moves along remember that they're going to be driven to protect their own self-esteem Mm. I have to be special. So when I realized that this relationship is ordinary <laughs> rather than, well, we're both ordinary people, you know, we, you know, any of us at the beginning of a relationship, we are a little idealizing of the other person. Right. Yeah. And then you realize that actually this person has flaws and they they have their insecurities and they have their irritating qualities. And so do you. <laughs> And you're like, well, you know what, we, we're just two human beings and we do still really like each other and there's a lot of fondness here. So we're going to work together, we're going to live with these things and this, that's just part of life, right? There is that sort of coming down from the cloud nine and to settle into reality. That transition is what people with high levels of narcissism just can't do. So it then becomes, well, if you're not so special, then you're nothing then you're you piece of shit. Mm. So that's a devaluing of the partner. Mm. And it also it's like, it's got to be, I am still special. I'm still amazing. And you are not good enough. So when any conflict arises in a relationship, when any dissatisfaction arises, any disappointment, the flip between this is the most amazing relationship to this is worthless. And you're a nobody mm. or to making demands, you're not good enough and you need to shape up. You want to stay with me? You need to improve. You need to be better. Um, can the switch can be rapid, which I think is really confusing for the person on the receiving. It's like, what do I do? You know, and so maybe I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, but it, that's a response to how the narcissistic person is feeling to their own threat to their self-esteem that the relationship that they thought was going to be perfect and show them to be so amazing and special. Actually, it's very ordinary after all. Both parties are having their self-esteem threatened in a way, aren't they? But the person with the narcissism, well, again, both parties actually then also default to their age-old coping with that. Absolutely. So, So And the the other person will then start to try to please, Mm. to placate, to improve, to work harder which is never good enough and never acceptable. Mm. And then 
that's a that's a toxic dynamic mm. it's very difficult to get out of when you're in the relationship you mentioned a little while ago that compassion and self-compassion are, are my interest areas and in some sometimes i i think that i'm actually just a bit of a one-trick pony with that it's sort of the main thing that i um am into but um i was going to ask you you know like where does that come in you know because I'm, I'm i'm guessing it's it's tricky you know in terms of compassion and self-compassion and trying to work in yeah. relationships perhaps during the relationship while they're still working things out but maybe also you know after separation or during recovery but yeah where does compassion and self-compassion come into it you know it's i had a big and complicated question could spend a whole hour on quite easily mm. Yeah. And I think one thing to just say, you know, compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. It is not concerned with letting people off the hook. Because mm -hmm. I think people find this a little difficult when I start talking about the need for compassion in relation to narcissism to help narcissists develop self-compassion. They're like, what are you going to teach these people to love themselves even more? And mm. like, well, one, they don't actually love themselves at all. Okay. Because if you love yourself, you can accept yourself as you are even when there's aspects of you that may be difficult or imperfect okay but also it's compassion for the suffering it's not tolerance of bad behavior and it's not tolerance of abusive and hurtful behavior and i think a lot of people who've been in relationships with narcissists will think well i was really compassionate i was so giving i was so generous i was so kind and like well, you were very people pleasing and you were very self-sacrificing but that doesn't necessarily mean that that was ever going to alleviate anyone's suffering. It wasn't certainly going to alleviate your suffering. It's a real often lacking in self-compassion to be so self-sacrificing, giving. And that's not criticism as well. That's a reality to tune in to what are you doing to yourself when you are so self-sacrificing? That's difficult and painful to look at, but I think compassion has to take us there to mm. see how have you been in a relationship that has led to so much suffering for you and then at the same time also look, i think i need to also acknowledge that sometimes these relationships are hard to get out of because and i think this is where it gets confusing because we muddy the waters because i think narcissistic presentations are seen as synonymous with abuse and they're not. So not all narcissists are behaving in grossly abusive ways in their relationships, but some are. And so you also get overlap with very controlling partners, partners who may actually become physically aggressive if the relationship was to end. Very sometimes very difficult to leave those relationships. There can be real dangers. And so the person really who's in the relationship is in a really difficult position. Well, what do I do? Do I take the risk to leave? And the consequences that might have for me and for children or do i stay i mean there's and i think there needs to be a lot of compassion for just how difficult a position that person is in which is one of the reasons i'm kind of like one of the things i really don't like about the internet phenomenon is like just leave you've got to leave the narcissism well i think a lot of the time that is a really good thing to do but for some people leaving is far more difficult and far more dangerous okay and then i think there are times where people stay and they could leave hmm. you know they really could and it would be probably much better for them 
if they did. Mm. Um, so there is, I think there's a need to have compassion for yourself first. And then I think when you think about having compassion for someone who's highly narcissistic, I think there is a need to under, tune into the underlying patterns, the vulnerabilities that lie beneath the behaviors and to have compassion for that aspect. But that doesn't mean tolerance of the behaviors and it doesn't mean staying in a relationship. I mean, this is the thing you often find where people will say, I stayed, I was, no one was more compassionate to this person than me. Um, but actually, no, you, no one was more self-sacrificing than you. And that has, that's not, I don't think that's compassion. And I think we need to not see compassion and self-sacrifice as the same thing. Hmm. You, you're probably more familiar with this than me, the concept of idiot compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, just going to have compassion, be kind and good, generous to everyone. Like, well, don't do that with someone who's conning you or hurting you because that's not compassionate to you and mm. to all the other people that's going to hurt. You know, so I think there's a need to have a wisdom around compassion and how you express it and to keep yourself safe. And it's not compassionate to allow someone to behave in the worst possible ways towards you or anyone else. I think you're right. I think this could be a, a whole nother hour's discussion. You've really laid out a lot of good stuff there in terms of uh, what this might all mean. I mean, the, the first really important point is, is, is the, the classic, you know, what is compassion or what is self-compassion? And it's not um, letting people off the hook. And it's also not really necessarily the same as love or, or self-love, you know, it's, it's, it's to do with being sensitive to suffering and taking wise action to alleviate that suffering. And, and so people can confuse it perhaps with what maybe they're already doing or, or the, the, the efforts that they've tried. And, and yet, uh, you know, the, there's also, they also know that, that that is sort of causing them more suffering. And so it's, it's the, it's the wisdom piece. It's the, the, the strength and courage piece. It's, it's that commitment to, to being helpful and, and alleviating suffering. I, I noticed in a way, and it makes sense actually, because a moment ago we we were sort of saying that in a couple people, you know, both parties find themselves, you know, their, their self-esteem, you know, taking a hit. And so in some ways, self-compassion for, you know, for both parties to learn self-compassion seems to be a, a very, um, you know, worthwhile and reasonable place to start actually it would look different for each of them for yeah. one self-compassion might be about being a little bit more more bounded have different limits being able to um express needs and and kind of be assertive even and and so on and for the other one self-compassion might actually be about having a, a sense of where my specialness or grandiosity or or other elements of my personality are causing me suffering and perhaps pulling that back and becoming a little um calmer softer um you know more grounded you know those kind of things so that the, the self-compassion is different but it's kind of like that's yeah. where they both need to start sorry Ruth. i think they both need to you know the person who's in the relationship with a narcissistic person 
often need to acknowledge their own suffering that mm. you know because you can be so striving towards pleasing and placating the other person you end up really self-neglecting and often there's a need to recognize how hurt you are how much pain there is how much neglect of you there's been and that's painful to get in touch with and there's also a need to kind of have compassion that for the ways in which you've neglected yourself and to take ownership of i really need to act differently to alleviate this suffering which does look like more boundaries sometimes it looks like leaving the relationship um but i think when you when you do it from that place well i'll often say to people is when you when you leave in, a, in the middle of a conflict and it's a sudden that's it i've had enough we're all done which often happens you have this sort of like make up break up make up break up make up break up like when you do that you're actually not making a wise decision mm. yeah when you sit yourself down and you take time to really think about how much you've suffered in this relationship and to acknowledge the aspects of the relationship that maybe you've enjoyed that have drawn you in but then you realize on balance there's just so such a cost to pay and you're no longer prepared to pay that cost i think the decision to leave is a lot more stable hmm. than it is if you are just leaving in the midst of a heated argument hmm. um so so i think there's that and, and also sometimes then the decision to stay if you decide to stay in that relationship it's tempered with how are you also going to look after yourself you know for some reason you can't leave and certainly know people sometimes leave because they're like i can't face a legal battle with this person and our children and what that would do to our family and how that would actually play out i don't think that's going to be in our interests okay but then how are you also going to look after yourself and acknowledge the hurt and acknowledge how neglected you are so not running away from that and finding ways to take care of that, even while you're in a relationship that's very difficult to be in, for example. And then sometimes there is a possibility of maybe if the other party is willing, then maybe there is an ability to do some couples work as a two of you and you, you actually become much more self-compassionate and you invite the other person to join you in that, to lift you up rather than put you down. And it's a kind of challenge to do that. And I think for the narcissistic person, they, they also need to tune into their own suffering. And that's often overwhelming because it's like acknowledging there's neglect, there's deep pain and suffering often underlying some of these very offensive modes and very offensive ways of behaving to understand what lies beneath that is painful to get in touch with. And you have to be concerned about that. And then you also have to be out of concern for yourself, not out of berating yourself or punishing yourself, out of concern for yourself, you start to have higher expectations for how you behave and a willingness to do things that are uncomfortable, like putting your partner first sometimes. Hmm. Like really... acknowledging that you messed up without having to defend yourself. Yes, you're, you're really emphasizing that, that sort of strength and courage bit because to be... Mm -hmm compassionate towards oneself is no small thing is it because it does mean being in contact with those parts that are, are really hurting and, and traumatized and and, and yeah. so on and and so it it really whew, takes a lot of wherewithal to be able to approach all of that and and to begin that process of self 
compassion. It reminds me of uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Deborah Lee, who I'm sure you've probably yeah. come across over there in the UK. And one of her quotes was, a calm mind thinks differently. And so in some ways for both parties, it's about trying to find the the calmness to think these things through in a way that's that's most likely to to tap into wisdom and to come up with that that wise action that will alleviate suffering. Um, the, and, and then you alluded, I think, to the the couple stuff, which is where actually we can start to play with the three flows of compassion, I guess, as well. So we've got the self-compassion going and then we start to explore the giving and receiving of compassion, maybe, from each other. And, and, and I think that's really important to emphasise, I think, the difference between empathy and compassion. So I'll often say we're going to start with empathy rather than compassion and understanding what lies beneath some of these more difficult behaviors and you then I, I love Wendy Berry's approach is she calls it empathic confrontation it's kind of key and scheme of therapy but it is being able to be empathic to someone to say look I get that you need to feel special I get that it is crushing for you when you perceive any criticism when you think your work's not going I get it's really hard for you to switch off from the demands that are put on you and that you put on yourself but I also need you right now. And I also think that you do want to be a good partner to me. So we need to address this. Or we need to, you know, whatever it is, it's hard to, yeah. it's hard to give an example without a, a scenario, but it's, yeah. it's learning no, art in, empathic and also making the demand, giving the confrontation, making the request in in ways that are more likely to be heard you you can imagine that would feel very scary for the person with narcissism you know because it's a kind of a pride shame thing isn't it you know on the one hand it's the pride i'm special i'm great i'm you know and and on the other hand if i dial that down what if i just bottom out and i have to confront my shame it's an invitation, in a way, to treating someone else better or to changing your behavior. Mm. I wouldn't go so far as to invite someone to explore the depths of their shame in one go. That's a no. journey over a long period of time, I think. No, I was more thinking of that as that's the fear that comes up for yeah. the person. Um, yeah. not, not so much that we uh wanting them necessarily to go there but that's the that's the fear that can get in the way i guess of of trying these things and and kind of trying to shift into a more compassionate motivation towards one's partner um, yeah and then then with a the partner in that situation i would emphasize you you need to explicitly state your intention i care about our relationship and i also know that you care about our relationship okay mm. And so I'm saying this in the spirit of us caring for the relationship, not of criticizing you. Because that's the sensitivity is. That's the sensitivity. The criticism. And sometimes that's helpful. And sometimes it falls on deaf ears. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, these things are worth trying. If you, you are with someone who's quite narcissistic, 
that's not a guarantee they're always going to have the desired effect mm. and sometimes it takes practice over time you know and sometimes oh. you need them just as much when someone decides to leave a relationship you know i'm like someone's like you know, so hurt and so angry and that's a big trigger to the narcissistic person my partner is angry and they're going to go and tell everybody what a shit i am i'm like well, tell them you won't do that give them the reassurance look you've cheated on me i get it i'm not pleased you know i'm hurt by it but i want to reassure you i don't think that makes you a terrible person and it's not something i think everybody needs to know about so i'm not going to be spreading it around about you mm. You know, because that's reassuring. You're not going to tell everybody how awful they've been. Or, you you know, you say, you know, we, we maybe we're divorcing, but I value you as a co-parent. Hmm. And there are lots of good things about your parenting. I mean, you can only say that if it's authentic. Okay, you can't say that if you can't say that at the same time as trying to get 100% child custody because you're accusing them of being abusive to a child, which sometimes is the case and does need to be addressed. But if there is some good that can be acknowledged, I think that can be really helpful. Mm. And that can also be quite strategic. Mm. But that, again, it needs to come from a place of compassion, not a place of placating. Yes. The, the sort of the and reassuring the sorry what was that last bit and compassion for yourself mm. you know I always think about the person who's cheated who's worried about their partner spreading it around that they cheated I'm like you you reassure them partly for them but mostly for yourself mm. because you don't want them on the rampage <laughs> mm. and you don't want them saying all kinds of you're kind of saying let's just put this away let's be grown up about this puts a, a, a something of a heavy load on the partner doesn't it to be able to do all of that um it is but uh, that's often sometimes avoiding the worst load of mm. a narcissistic person who's in a real rage and who's mm. prepared to go and say all kinds of things about the partner how, how do you find people you know higher on narcissism and and you know their sort of a, a ability to cultivate compassion or, or a compassionate motivation for others or for their partner <clears throat> they normally have a lot of objection to it mm. as you well know many people are like completely turned off by the idea of compassion some will find it offensive some will see it as permissiveness give me all this soft love mm. You know, rarely will I use the word at the beginning, mm -hmm. put it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm much more likely to be like, there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. And we need to be a bit concerned about what's going on here. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to model it, I think, as well. Like, I am concerned for you. I see the pain here. I see what's, there's something underlying this, you know. But it's often I see the pain and the suffering that's underlying this. But whoa, this behavior is going to cause you a lot more pain and suffering, actually. Mm -hmm or me you know if you've got someone who it does it doesn't happen that often in therapy with the populations i work with but you know where you have a narcissistic person who becomes abusive to the therapist who's hypercritical of the therapist or who's um you know in, in private practice cancelling at the last minute not wanting to pay for the session or 
you know, showing up late and then being annoyed that you won't extend the time because you've got other commitments, you know, that sort of very demanding presentation. Um, you know, that's a real opportunity to model both compassion and boundaries. I can imagine that, yes, you're working a lot with, as Paul Gilbert would say, working a lot with the fears, blocks and resistances to compassion and self-compassion with with that population. And and like you say, steady as she goes, you're just sort of doing it little bit by little bit and gradually exposing the person to some of these ideas, reassuring them along the way, affirming them along the way, demonstrating it, modelling it. Um, gradually seeing can we can we sort of take little leaps here and there where where we give it a try and and hopefully the person feels a little bit more confident about it and 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 less fearful yeah yeah and yeah I think you're building trust you know Mm. you're building trust that you you know often what's underlying a lot of those behaviors is a fear of being seen in a bad light you know so you kind of also modeling i can see the worst parts of you and that doesn't mean i'm going to cast you in a good light or underplay the severity of those behaviors or how hurtful they are to other people but it doesn't mean i think you're a worthless human being you know i think it's, yes. it's needing to do both it's not your fault but it is your responsibility sort of a message yeah, yeah. well I'm sure that's uh, definitely too isn't it that's what's right Deborah Lee's line, isn't it? That's a CFT one. Yeah, I think that's a Paul Gilbert sort of a, a a line. Yeah, and it really is about trying to sort of de-shame uh, people, but without you know sort of necessarily um, you know they them sort of having disregard for perhaps what they could do or what they could change. But um, yeah, I've just noticed the time, and I, I really should um, let you go. I'm sure you have a a, a busy busy Monday over there. And and so, Ruth Ann, thank you very much for coming on Compassion in a T-shirt. Where can people find your work? Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and it's been fun. You can find me. I have my own YouTube channel, just Dr. Ruth Ann Harper. Um, And from there, you'll find my website. I'm on Instagram and TikTok, but mostly I'm on YouTube. Um, And yeah, that's where you'll find me. Great. There's a lot of great resources on the YouTube channel, of course, but also on your website as well. Lots of uh, links and various other sort of helpful resources. So thanks very much once again. Thank you.